What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. Finally, we get the full story of Weirwood. The the way you put that in there makes it sound like we're not necessarily excited about it, but... No, I I am excited about it. It's, I think, a highlight of this book, in all honesty. Mm -hmm. Like, Catherine becomes so important to the ongoing story of New Century that Mm -hmm. having her life story done as well as it is here makes cartographers i think necessarily even if like there are other origin points that work better for the series now but i think i have the uh, sort of trepidation in my excitement because you know i keep looking for that moment where things are going to get a bit like we were talking about that positive slash neutral sandwich so i think um, (laughs) and it's like Oh, there's definitely some, like, we won't be crying by the time we get to the end of Catherine's story, are we? Oh. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Small pieces of this would have already been heard by a new audience, by the, the, the audience that we were basically creating this content in small pieces for, thanks to the way that Secret Rooms was re recorded and redone for um the definitive edition mm-hmm. and so therefore people would have already heard the most heartbreaking moment of Catherine Holloway's account mm-hmm. um but it also includes so many more components to her story that people would have not have experienced up to this point mm-hmm. that it feels almost like a little bit of a different kind of Catherine that we are looking into or like maybe this is an insight into her just being a very intelligent person in general and knowing how to speak to an audience Mm. because when I was reperusing certain aspects of her full story, there are many components to it that indicate just how much anger she herself had at the Union for what they did to Beauregard and the hardship and the trials that she had to go through, that her people had to go through, that Weirwood had to go through in order to get this far, basically. And Mm. even at the very end, prior to relating Beauregard's final fate, she basically admits to the reader slash listener that upon encountering the cartographers, that she has to admit that 
she has still entrenched bitterness inside her that, in her words, left her indisposed on a personal level to their cause, and yet still put forward Abigail and James to Annie as potential recruits. And I wonder to myself if there is... Like, it all feels very honest to a certain degree, but I also Mm -hmm. wonder if there is a cultivated honesty taking place there, because, again, while trying to not get into future stuff that we have not covered yet, Catherine is going to go on to become a very important person in New Century and the RSA going forward. And that would it wouldn't be capable of her to do that if she were not someone that we could thoroughly agree trust. and empathize with. Trust, yes, trust is the best word to use mm-hmm. here. So hearing her honesty about how she feels about the cartographers in the RSA, part of me wonders if she let that be part of the recording as a way of reaching across the aisle to those communities that would also have a grudge against Mm. the union, as opposed to how she actually felt, Mm. especially since we already know that she made a personal connection with Annie Oakley. Mm. I think that Catherine, the more I think about this, has one of her strengths is she has a remarkable self-awareness and ability to like present the right version of herself or depending on the situation and by that i mean that when she's becomes the leader of wherewood and a guardian and protector for the children entrusted to her care she knows what it is that they need to see and Mm. that moment in the definitive edition of secret rooms where she gives the children from clearwater a a speech that says like this is how things are going to be this is why you were brought here and this is some of the motivation behind it and here's how we're going to carry forward with that in our minds and hearts then as time goes on she knows as she becomes more prominent, she adapts and knows exactly what she needs, what cards she needs to show on the table at any given time. And I think Mm. here, as you say, you do get that sense that she is quite calculating with her words. And that should make you think, oh, I'm not particularly taken with them because usually that's a characteristic of someone who's quite manipulative or something like that. And heck, as we will see with, well, I I was about to say, as we'll see in Arlington, the Mm -hmm. political thriller, which is a genre that invites lots of characters in who are like that. I was going to try and think about Thomas, Thomas Arlington, and whether he is manipulative or like does, to the extent of, does he do any manipulation? And I Mm -hmm. have to imagine he does in the sort of ways that anyone who's trying to sort of achieve goals within like the political space of Washington. Or, I mean, like... I, 
just got back from a three hour round trip um, getting my shot. And mm -hmm. that meant that I was spending some time going forward and re-listening to um, chapters five through eight of Arlington. Yeah. And so therefore something that came to mind and something we'll pursue further when we actually get that far is uh, some of the conversations that Arlington ends up having with Conrad and Truth. For any audience members that haven't read Arlington yet, there aren't any spoilers here, so I left this part of our conversation in, but I also put in an edit in order to specify that the truth spoken of here is a person rather than a concept, and you'll find out soon enough who she is. In regards to the handbook and, you know, some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, like the, the parts of that book where they get into, like, reflection on their methods and the way mm -hmm. they're going about things. And something that keeps happening as I'm re-listening to cartographers when I listen to our own material when we talk about the importance of truth as a concept and mm. what place that has in the story of Cartographer's Handbook and in New Century writ large and in like Thomas's relationship with that concept and perhaps his pursuit of truth and however he defines that, that when you know that he named one of his daughters truth, mm. you sort of, every time that that word is brought up and it's connected with him in some way, I, it does cause you to sort of pause the chapter and then think, is there multiple meanings here or something <laughs> like that? And the answer Goodness, is... Alex coming up with multiple meanings and something he writes? Surely right, you must be mistaken, Toby. Yes, yeah, exactly yeah, no, so. Preposterous. Yes, no, <laughs> no layers whatsoever. That's why we're spending uh, five, uh, seven episodes on this thing that we said we would crack out in one. Uh, absolutely zero layers here. Anyway, but to go back to the origin point of this deviation the idea of manipulation and i think that in online discourse and particularly with film and media and whatnot whenever people feel like they are being manipulated that's something that they're very resistant to to the point of they will like flat out reject material because of that manipulation is not something it's an act and one that isn't necessarily like it's usually coded negatively, especially mm -hmm. in the context of individual relationships with people. Like if someone is manipulative, that's not a great characteristic to be described as. But for someone who calculates their language and is trying very much to achieve a certain effect or goal with what it is they say and the different circumstances you see them in. And because we're an audience looking in at these characters and seeing them in a variety of situations, we have that insight that you don't necessarily get with people on a day-to-day -day basis. You only will get to see them through very specific lenses, whereas in fiction, because of the variety of scenes and different characters that individual characters will be bouncing off of one another you will actually absolutely see them adapt different methods of things and so when you see a character like Catherine conduct a very sort of measured approach to conversation on the one hand you would think oh is that like 
something manipulative and ba therefore bad. But to me, I think it just shows uh, that she is a very ad adaptable. Is that the word? I'm suddenly my head has gone. I, I think the adaptable is a good word to use. Yeah. And on top of that, as you were talking about some of the stuff, it makes me think about we didn't get all that much into the concept of the persona when we did our final episode of on Tiger's Eye. We sort of glossed over don't, the general concept of it. Don't make um, me bust out the Persona 5 soundtrack again, Greg. <laughs> we'll both regret it. <laughs> well, I won't, but you the, the, It's Well, it's a different kind of persona than we're talking about in terms of Persona 5. And, I mean... Let's not get too far off on that track. No, that's a completely no. separate conversation. I'm but severing I was just, this branch right now. Uh, yeah. Back to your point. I was just thinking from the perspective of, as someone that works in customer service, and as someone that has listened to other people talk about, the kind of voice that they put on or the kind of face that they wear in order to deal with customers and... Co-workers and the like. You put on an outfit that is, has, serves a very specific function. Exactly, and it doesn't seem to me like, based on what we know of Catherine thus far, through all of our experiences with the definitive edition of Secret Rooms, we know that she knows that she has to wear different faces. Mm. And in point of fact, this is a concept that comes up in her story of Weirwood in general when she talks about facing down the head of the bandits mm. that have a mind to storm Weirwood and how she feels like if she did not present an unyielding persona before him that they would have attempted to kill her and take everything right then. Mm. Um, she absolutely knows how to wear a different face depending on what the circumstances are, whether she's talking to the children in that opening speech, or whether she's talking to the bandit leader, or whether she's talking to James or Abigail. And even though when the speech is bracketed by the conversation inside Secret Room's Definitive Edition, where... Catherine says that she hasn't prepared anything. You still feel, now that we've gone from one end to the under of her actual account, that she found exactly the right voice to be speaking about her experience in regards to talking to a very specific kind of audience. This is old hat for her. She just needed to find the right voice. In the case of Catherine's story of Weirwood, I suspect that, like many others, she knows how to use the truth tactically. Everything that she said can be true, and yet also not be the whole truth. After all, it's not like anyone is actually owed the whole truth, except maybe in a court of law. Choosing not to say something does not necessarily make it a breach of trust. Context always matters. But that's a deep hole to go down and somewhat beyond the remit of our podcast. So, as always, moving on. One of her greatest strengths is that she she is someone who can 
occupy new roles with surprising surprisingly quickly I think that she from her story has clearly taken to this role of being a leader very well and in a key point in time because when the Wendigo was first outbreaking it was really important that people responded appropriately and Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we saw Catherine do she's a success story of the post Wendigo version of America that mm. she like saw this great unimaginable calamity and had to reevaluate, had to occupy a new role, had to like take on other people, which meant that she not only was changing the role that she was living for her own survival, but for the survival of other people and specifically children. She became a guardian and she became the sort of commander of an outpost when it when her settlement was being attacked. She assumed that role not only very quickly, but with a remarkable effectiveness. So when she suddenly has to be an orator, like has to narrativize her own experiences from the last 10 years, she manages to see what she needs to do and fulfills it just remarkably quickly mm-hmm. yeah <sighs> i don't <laughs> i don't um i don't necessarily know how to follow on from that um mm. i suppose uh, my question is that and it's a very basic one but because this is the most emotive part of cartographer's handbook arguably how does Catherine's story make you feel after you read it reread it and listen to maya's performance as her just what are what is the feeling that you walk away from her really memorable story i find that i always end up concentrating on how it ended Hmm. because that's the most emotional part of it Hmm. and it's also the part that is actually in definitive rooms definitive i like definitive rooms that's actually (laughs) gonna be what i (laughs) secret edition (laughs) that part of her story is in secret rooms definitive edition so therefore, it is always the part that I remember the most. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it became important for me to remember to re-listen to the whole thing a couple of times. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot more going on there than simply the tragedy of her final loss, mm-hmm. so to speak. I think that that's important as a part of the story of her sacrifice it bookends the beginning of her story and her choice after Beauregard came back from war Mm. broken and her need to for her own sake to marry him nonetheless and to as in her words stand by him Mm -hmm. and of course it also comes to mind how she relates her story of trying to hold on to the property and the plantation by herself and not getting a whole lot of support from Beauregard himself. 
except when it came time to turn Weirwood into a fortress, at which point he actually roused himself long enough to teach others what he knew about being a soldier and to teach Catherine everything Mm. that he knew about how to be a military leader in that regard. Mm. It makes me think a little bit about the more, not drawn out because it wasn't actually drawn out, but it makes me think of the conversation between Rafe and Amanda all the way back in Let Them Go. Yes, when, when they are actually rather similar <laughs> pairs, aren't they? I mean, it's their situation is more complicated than that. Absolutely, Rafe, Rafe didn't return from being a soldier broken. He he returned whole, and um, he certainly part- had taken on some damage to his soul. I think just yeah. from some of the conversations, but he, I think Beauregard was absolutely very much not recognizable to Catherine in the same way that when Rebecca saw Rafe, Rafe thank you, uh, she instantly recognized him. And I think that there's something to that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that I think of now is that Catherine's journey towards becoming self-sufficient bears some resemblance to Rebecca's story and let them go in regards to Haversons. But the motivation there is very different. Catherine had to learn how to do things on her own because she didn't get enough support from others, Beauregard included. Rebecca desired to be successful as the only way that she could retain her agency in the face of the will of her father and, one could add, other powerful men in the world she inhabited. But Catherine's story feels like one of success against the odds, where Rebecca's story could be considered a position she was forced into, and made it so that she could not always choose the course she wanted and still retain the agency she prized. Most importantly, the onset of the Wendigo drastically changed their personal and social circumstances, as well as what was important in their lives. But while we continue to discuss Catherine's story, Rebecca's ongoing story is something for a much later time. I would say that becoming a soldier, the process of becoming a soldier, let alone being a soldier, the experience of it, is a little bit of a a breaking and distorting of self to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily want to get off on that tangent either, because I have many opinions about the damage that comes from having to give up your a measure of your freedom and a portion of your soul in order to become a killing machine at the will, at somebody else's command, so to speak. Having said that, re-listening to these words during the edit is eerily synchronistic, as in a few days I'm going to be sharing my thoughts on the newest MCU TV, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, on School of Movies. And discussion on the effects of becoming a soldier are pretty fucking relevant. So if you want to hear me talk more on this matter, the opportunity is there. I think that that is a conversation that will be very relevant to have when we get to a certain point in Frank Butler's story. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it will. But um, I think we'll talk about that. Then. Yeah, let's... Uh, Saying let's save that for then implies <laughs> that it's like a treat, like, oh, don't unwrap your present of the trauma of becoming a instrument of death and destruction, kids. Ah, oh, fooey, can we have it today? <laughs> I say uh, some weird stuff in the process of recording this. I surprise myself, ladies and gentlemen. Can't have any pudding. How can you have your pudding if you don't eat your mate? <laughs> we we have to laugh though that's the point isn't it and yeah yeah it's uh gallows humor mm. oh, i'm sorry gibbet humor um <laughs> uh that's totally going to be what we're gonna say isn't it it's <laughs> gibbet humor exactly um, exactly but um, then gibbet humor sounds like it's the humor surrounding had like flubs and whatnot but you yeah, know what? It's it's, it's flexible. We can say gibbet humor to mean one thing, and gibbet humor to mean another thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all in how you pronounce the G. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but so you you asked me a question. You asked me how I felt after yes. re-experiencing Catherine's story. Mm. Um, I feel like. Her story is presenting one aspect of herself that is not untrue. Mm. But I also feel like the Catherine that we have seen in other realms and other avenues mm. reflects a different kind of Catherine to an extent. Mm. I think I think all of it is its own truth, so to speak. Mm. Um, but there is, I think, a greater understanding at play when I think about her story as written and what the author was trying to do at the time when he wrote Cartographer's Handbook mm -hmm. and how his opinion of what New Century is trying to do and therefore what the characters of New Century say mm -hmm. as it plays out that the overall goal has changed dramatically since then. Mm. Um, that's part of the reason why I look at her story much more from a perspective of more propaganda to mm. an extent, rather than a distinct insight into her as a person. Because mm. goodness knows I know enough about and have heard enough about the changes that Alex has wanted to make along the way as he updates and remasters his story as he can. Most recently, some changes coming into play in regards to... Um, Arlington? Yeah, exactly. And that that's going to be its own conversation far down the road. But yeah, exactly so, exactly so. Other stuff as well, but, but Arlington is the one... That's most recent. There is no etymological connection between the word history and the English masculine pronoun his, as in some fallacious assertions that history can be translated as his story. The famous quote that history is written by the victors does have some basis in reality, even as modern historians do often try to get a more objective understanding of our historical past in order to obtain an accurate reading on what actually happened. 
rather than one person or culture's assertions of what happened. Here, the words, his story, that I used a moment ago is literal. New Century is Alex's story, and it is fictional, so there is no objective truth to draw on. Fiction is subjective by nature, both in the writing of it and the audience's understanding of it. That's one of the founding principles of this podcast. But because of the discussion of the difference between the handbook as a historical document and a piece of subjective propaganda, there is a contrast between our understanding of the handbook and of New Century itself in regards to intent. The intent behind what the in-universe text wants to say, what Alex wants to say, and what the text reveals of all of the authors. The handbook goes through revisions, and the books of New Century themselves go through revisions, as Alex becomes dissatisfied with what an earlier version of him wrote, and now wants to go back and change to better distill his new thoughts and opinions. There's a genuineness in that that I can wholly respect, especially in this modern era of social media, where we are sometimes called to account for the flawed beliefs in our past, still present for others to read. But for now, I'm going to leave it there, as this little editorial insert is fodder for a larger discussion later on. Not in the retrospectives themselves, but in a future Through the Window segment, where I and a certain special someone with ties to the New Century universe are going to discuss these larger ideas in detail. I think but... Arlington is such a... <laughs> difficult one to go into because that one was pointed so squarely at a point of hurt and trauma for a lot of people over the last few years Mm -hmm. just the political landscape and the continued utter disappointment of I won't even just say the American people but just people Mm -hmm. in general at like the responses in times of crisis and moments where our metal is tested and it feels like our true personality can come forth. We could prove ourselves and yet instead we disprove ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so revisiting that when all of that was still very much felt and there was a fear and an anxiety and a frustration and how that has just redoubled and retripled and requintupled and all of that and just become so crystallized over the years to return to it. Why am I, through my own words, putting myself off from doing the second half of this season? Why why am I why am I like this? Alex has already uh apologized a couple of times for what he himself knows we are going to have to discuss going forward into Arlington. And I've told him before that, you know, this is this is our job and, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do it no matter how difficult it is. I continue to count it as one of the better books in the series. This is not a feeling of, oh, like, this book is lesser. Far from it. It's a bit too successful at what it is trying to achieve. And yeah, it's it's not a, a happy-making book. Yeah. No, a, 
Tiger's Eye, for all of its like spectrum of emotional experiences, is one that just uplifts and soothes and salves. Mm. And I think that I am going to leave Arlington feeling raw. So mm. what I might do is listen to some of our Tiger's Eye uh, episodes <laughs> just alongside, just to kind of even it out. But uh, once again... I have led us off the path, and maybe I am realizing in a subconscious effort to forestall us getting to Arlington, but I shall do my duty, as you say, it is our job, and guide us back to wrapping a bow on Catherine's story for the time being. Mm -hmm. I think what I get from Catherine, and it ties in 100% to what you're saying, that this is very much propaganda Catherine for the purposes of propaganda like version of her character rather than the intimate moments of us getting insight to her and to the characters she interacts with that we see in Definitive Room's Secret Edition or in future books where she plays a very important role. What I get is the resolution, the resolve of Catherine from this because and that's pivotal to her story because it's there even before the time of the Wendigo. It wasn't that she was confronted with this and she found it within herself there. We see it in her, in Beauregard coming back, in her deciding to still marry this man, even though he is very different to the one that she agreed to marry beforehand. What I get from it is that as much as she is not 100% content with signing on with the government coming that has come to her doorstep after all this time, especially as like she has had to last this long without them and now suddenly here they are. It's both what she was hoping for, as we saw in Secret Rooms, but that there would be some sort of like organised effort to combat the Wendigo, but it's also bringing back these old wounds, especially because she's had to relive and rethink them for the purposes mm. of this reaccounting of her story. Nevertheless, when we get to the point in her story where she's talking about her husband coming back, she would be very justified to have a certain resentment towards the North, the Union, but it feels more that she doesn't spend time damning her circumstances and wanting to, like, just beseeching it that it could change in some way. She takes it on board and it causes her immense grief, but she nevertheless accepts it and works to make it her new reality, her decision to marry him. And even though he wasn't really coming back to her even when he was there it shows that inside Catherine is someone who no matter what shit is heaped on her plate she will find a way to move forward it won't always be glamorous or glorious but she is someone who can endure and you see that time and time again and when we get to the end, when you see the loss of her husband, 
I think that's what makes that moment so heartbreaking because her whole story is all about her ability to endure, to withstand calamity. And then you get to the point where she allows herself a moment of vulnerability, her Maya's performance to just allow Catherine to break down in recounting this moment. It's a bittersweet cocktail of immense pride and sadness at what was lost in her husband. And I think that you brought up that Beauregard over time manages to open up a little bit and regain some of his old self and teaches the people at Weirwood and teaches Catherine what he knows, his knowledge. And that is something that is both uplifting and deeply saddening because it's a sign that with enough time her husband could heal, that the trauma of what he had gone through, and even in circumstances as oppressive as trying to survive a Wendigo apocalypse, that he is still healing somehow. And yet, by the end of it, whatever future that they could have had, that can't be. Even then, Catherine crystallizes everything that she admires and loves about her husband. And I think that's why the accounting of it is particularly significant because in Cartographers, that story is now going to be shared and told and her husband will inspire just as he inspired her and some of the people at Wherewood. There are times that I am annoyed at my editor brain for wanting to tighten up the official record and remove the long, drawn-out pauses in our conversation so that the audience doesn't think that the audio cut out. But in this case, just imagine for a moment the utter silence for myself for about half a minute as I try to process everything that my brilliant co-host just said and formulate my response. Yeah, I, um, I'm with you on all of that. And mm. I'm, I'm just reflecting a little bit on the fact that so much of New Century, like we, we bring this up over and over because it, it's there over and over, but so much of New Century is about dealing with trauma, mm. whether whether successfully or not. And the story of Catherine and Beauregard is not quite a template, but it is the first example of a story that will continue to play out in mm. multiple different ways mm. as we learn about the history of other people and as the story itself proceeds to continue on into the future and 
there is more loss. And I just think to myself, um, that line from Infinity War, where Rocket says, well, I could lose a lot. Me personally, I could lose a lot. In response to Thor saying that he's already lost everything. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, that's. I'm, uh, I, I am actually tearing up, and I think that before we move on, uh, if it wasn't already obvious, this is my favorite part of this book. It is the mm. best segment of the anthology of Cartographer's Handbook, and I think that. It works so well in isolation, but I think it also does embody a lot of what Cartographers is trying to achieve on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's proceed Buckner. on to... Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say, let's go from something completely dour to something more cheerful. Oh, wait, this is the we story We had this problem guy. last time, we just... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This time, you don't know that we're, this is a separate recording session. <laughs> I mean, I always tend to be very transparent in regards to the issues that we've had in regards to both technological problems as well as it just makes for a more interesting story to be transparent. Mm. Um, following well, in the of footsteps we're transparent. of... We're an audio medium. <laughs> yes, exactly so. But yeah, so we've already discussed the stories of the past, so to speak. This is where we're coming closer to the future as we relate a number of the stories that are nearer to the time coming up to the actual release of the handbook. Mm. Because Lieutenant Buckner's story is one of being a cartographer, interacting in the world, and his unfortunate end as regards not surviving a contact with the Wendigo, but having his account written down in his own words as a first note of invoking the empathy of the audience, both kinds of audience in this case. Mm. My question to you at the time was, how does his story set the stage for what is to come, both thematically and emotionally? So this is the basic experience of being attacked by the Wendigos. And as that is the key element that sets Centrum on its divergent path from our world, it's important to tell an uncomplicated but nevertheless emotive account of that experience that virtually everyone alive in this version of America has come across. Everyone has someone has seen someone go through this change, but not everyone has heard the written account of someone deteriorating in quite this way. Mm-hmm. It sets the stage for the rest of Cartographer's Handbook. It, it comes very early in the book in that it is about confronting shared trauma through the accumulation of facts and information and reflecting on all of it, it sets the stage for a new century on a wider scale and by extension cartographers as well, emotionally by showing that as much as Buckner is the typical example of a Wendigo victim, he's meant to not just embody his own experience, but that of 
countless like, millions of other people, mm-hmm. even despite the fact that he's this sort of typical example, he is nevertheless characterized and given specifics to his identity. The details of his family and his hopes for his child and the also the quiet mannerisms that Daniel Floyd injects into this performance through his personal touch as a voice actor. This all communicates that everyone in New Century has a story to them and that the loss of life, any life, is notable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we've already discussed um, Maggie Struther's own account and as you say, she was seeing from without what happened to a woman that was fairly important to her mm-hmm. uh, as part of the community, as potentially a personal friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, Lieutenant Buckner is relating his own experience as his brain undergoes those changes. It makes it more personal in a way that is separate from anything that the audience might have experienced so far, whether we're talking about Maggie Struthers seeing the change come about in the woman that was bitten, or whether we're talking about some of the more difficult moments in Let Them Go, where Mm. we see the change come about uh, Amanda Wolverton, as well as its solicitor Dawson himself. Although in that case... Our experience of him is one of a civilized danger turning into a feral monster. So here, it's a far more personal experience that has to be carried by the power of the voice actor, in this case, as well as in the account that is actually given. Yes, exactly so. It's the kind of like micro-narrative that is very familiar to those who who've played video games or horror games especially the resident evil games you know those Mm. documents that you'll find littered around and early on in the game you'll find a diary entry and it Mm. sort of is saying january 12th such and such and it gives a sequence of events and slowly but surely they get to the point where things have gotten bad or they've sustained the bite and then the last few scraps of pages will indicate the change that's happening until you get to the last bit which will just be itchy scratchy tasty or something Mm -hmm. like that i forget but i think that what is effective about this particular example in cartographer's handbook is as you say the voice actor and the writing sort of sells you on the it's not just a slow acceptance or an inevitability i think that that is 90 percent there but even buckner has that little 10 percent thing of perhaps i'll be one of those rare cases Mm. like he he says it without necessarily believing it but it is nevertheless a hope that is there it has that complexity to it that as much as you pretty much know where this is heading it does sell you on this not just being text, but this being a person who's going through it. And the mystery is preserved because towards the end, you're seeing the signs that he's going to be a Wendigo soon and how he says that great line of like, 
that he is telling me to behave. I do not see the need. And mm-hmm. it's just great words just to really get to the elemental like side of just someone shedding their human skin. But it cuts it off before anything else is shown. You don't get that internal insight of what a Wendigo is experiencing or like. And I think that that is, for Alex, very intentional because he's trying to get you to, like, there's a mystery element to draw you further into the world. And for Arlington, it's very much a case of trying to convince you that these are animals, monsters that need to be dispatched, that the person they were before, we can grieve for them, mourn for them, and respect them and even award medals of honor to them but the wendigo that they turn into is not them as far as arlington in the handbook is concerned mind as to whether that remains true well we'll see won't we first of all i would have to say that in this particular case the experience of the audio drama is almost necessary to have the full experience of what Lieutenant Buckner goes through Mm -hmm. because there is also musical interlude that happens during his account suggesting the passage of time as well as emotional weight as well Mm -hmm. as the mood changing Mm -hmm. yeah exactly And that brackets and highlights the performance of Dan Floyd showing this experience. But I think you're also right in that it provides a very specific note that is part of the planned intent for the cartographer's handbook in a way that is more complicated as experienced in the rest of the world as experienced in what we've already seen with let them go and secret rooms both of those stories show a greater complexity to the wendigo in Mm. terms of the bodies that butler and james come across and in terms of rebecca's final encounter with Amanda Mm. in the wild and that last one is going to come up when we discuss Nightfall of the Wendigo Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine I'm I'm so sorry for keeping both Greg and you and Alex uh, all of you waiting this has been a couple of weeks so uh i have wanted to get myself into a stable place and Mm -hmm. also get a sort of body of time to sort of as i have expressed it and i know maureen likes this phrasing sink my fangs into it so uh (laughs) yes uh that news of the century which has been delayed but a good news of the century is good forever, but a rushed one where I'm sort of like, is not so great to listen to. Yeah, we want to properly give it to do as we always do, and Mm. it's just going to 
as as mentioned before, it's going to be a different experience than some of our previous stuff. By now, part one of our discussion of Nightfall is already available to listeners, although many of you might not have listened to it soon after its original release date. Parts two and three will be interspersed among our regular retrospective episodes, and as Toby has already said, we really bring our A-game getting into it. I do hope people read the new Phase 2 novels sooner rather than later, because even though I know many wait for the audio drama, News of the Century really has been some of our most enjoyable episodes to record, and given how long the retrospective has taken, it's going to be a long time before we do a deep dive on any of those books the way we have on Phase 1. Nightfall is going to be heavier overall, because there were heavy moments of Stone String Maidens and Panther Soul as well. I'm not knocking that. I don't think it's possible at this stage for a new century book to not have moments of heaviness or levity, no matter which end of the scale it's skewed into. Because I, I think I remember Alex saying at one point that he felt that Cartographer's Handbook might end up being like the darkest book he's done because, mm. or like the least amount of jokes that he has put into it. It may have even been one of our interviews, I forget. But um, yeah, I I think that I would, upon revisiting it, agree with that. That light is present in this, but I think that for what it is, it absolutely lacks some of that sort of the the, ne- the necessary give it humor. humor. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I'd overall agree. And here's another great stopping place for this week, which is good, because what was originally going to be three episodes of Dramatis Personae has now expanded to four. Partly because of the amount of content, and partly because of our slower recording schedule. To close us out, a song that I have a long history with. Of all the things I've ever talked about in regards to my past is that for a brief period in middle school, I was learning to play guitar. I was always only just okay at it, and most of my ability was to be able to strum out a bunch of major chords and a few minor ones. Things like sevenths or intricate finger-picking of individual notes was entirely beyond my dexterity. The one exception was the opening notes of this one song, which I learned thanks to my father's love of this particular folk rock singer-songwriter. I have always loved singing his songs, and it's very possible that more of his music will show up in later episodes of Through the Wind Door. After the story of Catherine Holloway and James Buckner, though, there's only one song that I could have picked. Until next time, this is James Taylor with Fire and Rain. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you. I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song. I just can't remember who to send it to. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end 
I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you You look down upon me, Jesus You gotta help me make a stand You just got to see me through another day My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way Whoa, I've seen fire and I've seen rain seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Been walking my mind to an easy time My back turned towards the sun Lord knows when the cold wind blows It'll turn your head around Well, there's hours of time on the telephone line To talk about things to come Sweet dreams and flying machines In pieces on the ground Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you, baby One more time again Thought I'd see you one more time again There's just a few things coming my way this time around 